Good evening. Uh, I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department. Welcome to Writers Live. Um, we're very happy you joined us tonight. We hope you'll also join us for some of our other upcoming events. On Tuesday, April 26th, Harriet Washington is reading from her new book, Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness, at 6.30 p.m. at the Church of the Redeemer. Um, so please sign up for our email list for updates or pick up a copy of Compass at the side of the room um, as you're milling around after the program. So tonight, we're very excited to welcome Timothy Jorgensen, Associate Professor of Radiation Medicine and Director of Health Physics and Radiation Protection Graduate Program at Georgetown University. Uh, with an accessible blend of narrative history and science and humor, Strange Glow describes mankind's extraordinary thorny relationship with radiation, including the hard-worn lessons of how radiation helps and hinders our health. Uh, Jorgensen introduces key figures in the story of radiation, as well as exploring our knowledge of and experience with radiation in the last century and how that can lead us to smarter personal decisions about radiation exposures today. So enough from me. I'm really honored to introduce to you Dr. Timothy Jorgensen. Well, it's not my style to actually stand at the podium and speak in a microphone, but I, okay, I'll speak louder. I guess it, it should be my style to stand at the podium and speak into a microphone, but uh, anyway, since, since the library is recording this, I am tied here. So um, anyway, welcome. Thank you all uh, for coming, and um, I just wanted to um, tell you a little bit about my new book that was released last month from Princeton University Press. And uh, I'm, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I wrote the book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I wrote it the way I wrote it. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why you should read it. And then I'm going to take questions for anybody who has, uh, has uh, particular questions. Um, so I assume that nobody has yet read the book because it's only been out a few weeks. But has anyone read it? No. Okay. Um, so the book uh, is a book about radiation, obviously, but the title is um, Strange Glow, the Story of Radiation. And the most important word in the title is actually story. So the book um, reads like a story from the discovery of radiation discovery of x-rays in 1895 all the way up to the present time, including Fukushima and even, even events after that. So uh, the purpose of writing it in the form of a story is that uh, I wanted to inform people about radiation. There's a tremendous amount of confusion out there about radiation. Um, and I wanted to inform people, but I wanted to do it in a way that... Um, that was uh, enter entertaining. It's a serious subject, but it can be delivered in an entertaining way. I wanted the book to have more the look and feel of a novel rather than a textbook. And so it's a story. It's really a series of stories. There are 17 chapters in the book. It's a, it's a story in three acts. Uh, the first part of the book is, uh, is a few stories about the physics of, of radiation, uh, starting with the discovery of x-rays by William Rankin. And, and I'll linger a little bit on that story. Yes? Yes, I will speak louder. Um, 
So that story, the original story by Rankin, is how uh, x-rays were discovered. So he was working in his laboratory, and he was working with something called a Crookes tube. A Crookes tube is like a, looks like a big light bulb. looks like a spotlight, actually. And, um, and it's really just a, uh, a light bulb without a filament. And uh, when you put electric current through it, uh, the uh, electrons jump from one electrode to the, to the next. And, um, and that's why they were doing it. They were trying to study electrons, which had newly been discovered. No one knew exactly what they were and how they worked. And so they were playing with this tube, and they were using magnets to um, alter the course of the electron and things like that. And he noticed that whenever he turned this tube on, that a fluorescent screen on the other side of the room would start to glow. So he didn't know what that was about. He suspected that maybe electrons were like escaping from his tube, so he tried to block them with cardboard and wood and, and um, rubber and things like that, and he couldn't block them. And then he went up and he put his hand to grab the screen and he saw the shadows of his bones on the, uh, on the screen, on the fluorescent screen. So that upset him. <laughs> and he called his wife down and showed her, and she got upset too, and um, they didn't know what to make out of this. So he concluded that there was some kind of mysterious ray that was coming from the tube and uh, going through flesh but not bone and interacting with the screen. And since he didn't know what it was, he called it x-rays, and that's why we call it x-rays today. Well, the amazing part of this story is that um, he went to publish it, and he published it around, uh, it was around Christmas Day in 1895. It immediately hit the newspapers traveled to the United States, and this was this was in 1895. So it you know it's not instant instant messaging or anything like that. But the, the thing about it was that every physicist in the world had these Crookes tubes because everyone was studying the latest thing, which was electrons, and so they all did this themselves. And so everyone in the world at the same time, all the physicists corroborated what he had found, and um, and it was truly amazing. And the public jumped on it as well because. Um, it was easily understandable for the public. He published his paper. There was no math. There was no equations. There was just a description, as I told you, and that x-ray. Now, you didn't have to be a scientist to figure out what the utility of something like this was going to be, right? So everybody saw that it was immediately apparent in medicine. A week later in Montreal, Canada, uh, a man got shot in the leg in a bar deal, and uh, the, the, the surgeons couldn't find the bullet. They said, well, why don't we get that Crooks tube over in the physics department? They used it to find the bullet. They saved the man's leg. A week later, a medical student in Chicago thought, maybe these x-rays are good for treating breast cancer. So they got a patient. They exposed her, her tumor to the x-rays, and the tumor shrunk. So like within a month of its discovery, radiation was used for both diagnostic purposes to find the bullet, and also it was used for therapeutic purposes to treat cancer. And that was the beginning, uh, 1895, and we've, we've come a long way since then. Interestingly, it was also used in forensics because the guy who shot his leg, got shot in the leg, his lawyer used the x-ray in court to, to, uh, for the prosecution. So this whole thing happened over a matter of a few weeks, and the whole world was, it was, he was, Renkin was the most famous person at the time because of this. And so um, 
in Germany, uh, you know, he, they wanted to make a statue to him, and um, he, he was a very humble man. He didn't want any statue, and, they, and they, they asked him to pose for it. He said, no, I'm not posing. They said, well, we're making the statue anyway, okay? You better come pose, otherwise it's not going to look anything like you, okay? So he agreed to do that, and the, the, it actually stood on the bridge uh, in Berlin, the statue did. Uh, it made it through World War One, but it was it was melted down in the last weeks of World War Two um, for bullets. Okay, so um, so anyway, that's how this story started. And um, so, in the first part of the book, I talk about uh, what I've just told you and some other stories about how radioactivity was discovered, about the how the atom was first split, and the and the purpose of that part of the book is to give you the vocabulary that you need to understand the health effects that I'm going to talk about next. So the second part of the book talks about um, the health effects of radiation. And some of these stories you probably know. How many have heard of the radium dial painters in New Jersey? Yeah, you, you've, most people have heard about that. I think there's a play that was on Broadway or something. Okay, so you know that story. For those of you who don't, the quick version of that is that radium, a radioactive material, was mixed with... Um, with uh, fluorescent paint and used paint watch dials so that people could see the glow-in-the-dark um, watches at night. And uh, what they would do when they, in this is they would take a paint, their paintbrush would get dull, and they would, they would twist it in the corner of their mouths so that um, to point it again. And every time they did that, they ate, ate a little bit of paint. And so um, most of these women working it, they were young women, 18 to 22 years old. Um, in a few years, many of them were getting sick, coming down with bone cancer, all other kinds of illness that was quickly traced to the radioactivity in the paint. Well, this was a shocker to everybody because people were drinking radium all the time, all right? They thought it was a health elixir. You know, so there were a lot of uh, energy drinks on the market that were, contained radium, and this just scared the hell out of people. And um, and it wasn't just the radium girls. There was uh, some famous uh, um, cases of a, there was a um, Pittsburgh uh, philanthropist, um, Eben Byers, and he had been drinking this stuff for years, and uh, he ended up with a, a terrible end because he he had been drinking way more than even the um, the radium girls had. So that was the first time the public was aware that maybe this radiation stuff isn't so good for us after all. Um, there were other cases of radium miners, and, um, and basically, uh, before long, people became aware that you can't expose yourself to too much of this stuff. So there was pressure for standards to come through, so there were limits for x-ray doses, there were limits for ingestion of radium, and, um, and things... Uh, um, improved after that. And then in the 1940s, people get another big shock, which was the atomic bomb dropping on Hiroshima. And of course, you know all that story. But I did a, something. How many of you have read John Hersey's book, Hiroshima? Okay, almost everybody. You're of the age that you would have read these things. Young people today have no knowledge of this, which is unfortunate, because um, that's a very poignant book, and in that book, he follows the lives of uh, six people in the, in the aftermath of Hiroshima. How am I doing on the volume here? Good? Do you hear me? Yes? Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, he follows six people, and um, I didn't want to retell Hersey's story, 
You know, everyone's familiar with this story. But what I wanted to do was, in his story, he wrote this just a month or two after um, the Hiroshima bomb was dropped. And it appeared in The New Yorker as a, uh, they published the whole thing in one issue of The New Yorker magazine. It's not a very big book. Um, and then it was published as a book. And, um, and uh, it used to be required reading when I was in high school. But the one story in there is about Dr. Sasaki, who was at the Red Cross Hospital in Hiroshima. And he describes what he sees over the next few weeks of patients coming in. And because it was early, they didn't know anything about it. So he just describes what he saw. There were three waves of sickness that he saw. And so what I do in the book is I, I retell Dr. Sasaki's story, and I put... I do it with hindsight that we now know. We now know why he saw three waves of illness. We know exactly why he saw these. We know the mechanisms of radiation. And so what I do is I tell that story and I insert the explanations for everything that he was seeing. Um, we go on from there and we talk, I talk about um, mutations, you know, and there's a huge worry after that that we'd have races of... Uh, of uh, monsters of people from mutants being created. You know, we still have, we had all those superheroes created, right? You know, like the mutant ninja turtles and all that. Well, people were worried that they were going to give birth to monsters. That never happened. What did happen is we had increases in cancers. And, um, and we've been studying that ever since the bomb was dropped. So to this day, we are still following um, people who were exposed. Obviously, they were exposed as children still following those people to see what happened with them and come up with um, risk estimates for cancer. And so at the end of chapter, um, uh, part two, um, what I hope to show you is that we know a lot about radiation. We have 100 years of experience with radiation. So it's not uh, like some people think, well, we don't know what radiation does and we need more research and all this. We can always use more research. But we know more about radiation than any other environmental hazard, okay, that, without a doubt. But this information has not gotten to the public. The public is still vastly confused about this. And, um, and so this, this brings me, to, uh, let me just mention in the last part of the book, uh, what I do is I take six different examples of things, of things that people seem to be uh, very concerned about, and I explain those things based on what you've already learned. And so those things, of course, what? Cell phones, right? Radioactivity in seafood, right? Uh, Fukushima, the accidents, you know, we talk about. X-rays, how dangerous X-rays are. Nuclear terrorism, so Chernobyl is, is in there too. So all of those things that people um, have questions about, I've tried to cover in those six examples. But I, I can't cover everything. But what I hope to teach in that part of the book is how you can weigh the risks versus the benefits and come up with your own decision. So it's just, it's just a lie to think that people, average people, even non-technical people, can't uh, understand this information and make their own decisions about the radiation exposure. So I hope at the end of the book, people feel empowered that they have enough information to not only make their own decisions about the radiation exposures, 
but to engage in the societal conversation about whether nuclear power is dangerous or not, whether we should be worried about dirty bombs, whether we should have mammograms, all of those things that people will feel that they're knowledgeable enough to at least ask questions and find people who can answer those questions or ask the right questions. And at the end of the book, I can't tell you that you will be less worried about radiation. You might be more worried about radiation, but the goal of the book is to make your fears more in line with the reality. Okay, so I would like you to worry less about cell phones and more about nuclear terrorism, all right? That's the, that's the goal of the book, to put those things in perspective. Okay, so now I'd like to tell you why I wrote the book. The reason I wrote the book is five years ago, when the Fukushima accident happened, uh, at that time, I was living uh, the life of a laboratory scientist who taught students about radiation but did not engage much with the public at large. But then Fukushima happened, and all of a sudden, I became very popular among the news media. So I was on CNN and ABC TV and Fox News, and uh, I'm not proud of that one, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, radio programs and, and newspaper articles. And so what that means is that my name is like out there on the internet. So if you Google something about radiation, usually my name comes up. And so um, after that time, people started uh, calling me and emailing me with questions they had about radiation. And um, some of the questions were simple questions, and I could answer them in a couple of minutes, but some of them were pretty sophisticated questions and um, that required a little conversation. And so what I was trying to do, I was trying to find a book that I could refer people to. So someone called me and they were worried about whatever, uh, mammograms or something. I said, oh, go to Dr. So-and-so's book and it describes it. So I, I couldn't find such a thing. I looked and I looked. And I mean, if you, if you go on Amazon and you type in radiation, you'll find tons of books. I'm not saying there aren't books. But most of the books are textbooks, you know, for radiologists and things like that. And then there's something that I call a dumbed-down textbook, okay? It's a textbook. It's a book written for the public, but it's written in the format of a textbook, okay, with graphs and tables and all of, all of that stuff. And it doesn't make for very entertaining reading, okay? Um, and the other type of book that's out there are these advocacy books, and you've seen them. I mean, there's books out there. Nuclear power, the power to save the world. I mean, you don't even have to read that book, right? You know what the storyline there is, right? Or Radon, the deadly killer in your basement, right? Okay, you don't need to read it. You know, you know it's, it's a... And, um, so, but there wasn't anything that gave you an objective viewpoint. And so I kept thinking, well, somebody ought to write this, somebody ought to write this. And then I found the conclusion that nobody was going to write this, and so I decided to write it myself. Okay, so... Um, so now I'll tell you why I wrote it the way I did. So um, I had been greatly influenced. I do a lot of reading myself, and I had been greatly influenced by three other books. And um, the first book uh, is not too surprising, The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. I'm sure some of you in this room have read that book, yeah. And so... Um, that book, the subtitle of that book is A Biography of Cancer. So he pretends or he, that cancer is, is like a person, and he tells you the story of cancer. 
And in doing that, he, um, he tells things from the perspective of the physician. He tells things from the perspective of the patient. To understand what's going on with the physician, you have to understand what he's thinking. So he, he, he puts some technical information there. To understand what's going on with the patient, you have to understand the bio, biological state of the disease. So by the time you get to the end of the book, you know a lot about cancer. And um, another book that, that influenced me greatly uh, is Thunderstruck by Eric Larson. I don't know if you've heard of that. You've probably heard of his other most famous book, soon to be a movie, The Emperor in the, the Devil in the White City. Have you probably heard of that? Okay. So he's written a number of books. The Lusitania, that's right, that's Eric Larson. And usually he has the same kind of uh, format for his books. He's got some kind of technological story going on, and then he's got some kind of human interest story going on. Uh, in Devil in the White City, it's a serial killer. In Lusitania, it's uh, the World War I. And, um, and what he does is the chapters usually go back and forth, back and forth, and, and at least in Thunderstruck, I couldn't figure out what the hell the two things had to do with each other. One was about uh, Marconi and discovering radio waves, and, and the other part was a doctor who kills his wife and buries her in the basement. You know, like, what? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, no spoiler alert here, so I'm going it, to, it all comes together in the end. So, so it, these books are gripping. They, they convey technical information in a user-friendly way in the sense that you're following the story, and then to follow the story, you need some technical information. So he gives you the technical information. Then the story picks up again, and, just, and then you find something you need some more technical He gives you the technical information. And, and in doing this, by the end of the book, you've absor- you know a lot about this subject, and, you, and it kind of was painlessly uh, absorbed. And then the last book will probably surprise you. Um, that last book is by Michael Lewis, who um, wrote, uh, well, he, he has a movie in theaters now, I think, called the, the Big Short. Okay? But before The Big Short was Moneyball. Okay? So, um, Moneyball. Moneyball, if for those of you who haven't read it, is about baseball statistics. Okay? So um, I went kicking and screaming into reading Moneyball because I, um, I have a friend. Uh, his name is Tom Cardi. I think you know Tom Cardi. And he invites me to go to national games quite frequently. And um, Tom is one of these guys who, uh, who likes to keep detailed scorecard of every pitch of the damn game. If you told him, like, what happened in the second game of the Nationals three years ago, he could tell you exactly what happened. Because he not only does he record it during the game, he saves them. He tells me he has, like, 50 of these books at home, all right? So I kind of gave him a buy on this little peculiarity because he's an accountant, all right? I figure that's what accountants do. They track things, you know. So, um, but somebody else told me, oh, you should, you should read this book, Moneyball. It's about baseball statistics. And I'm like, Really? And I th- he said, yeah, you'll, you'll like it. Trust me. So I read the book, and I thought, well, you know, even if I don't learn anything about statistics, maybe I'll learn about what's going on in Tom's head, okay? So, um, so I read it, and the book is great, and he does something similar. He tells the story of baseball statistics and how important they are through the story of Billy Bean, who was the manager for the, for the Oakland A's. And it is a gripping story, and it ended up being a movie. All right, So all of these authors use a similar thing where they take something that you think is boring, okay, and they make it entertaining by embedding it within a human interest story. So I thought, what is the 
what is worse than baseball statistics, worse than cancer, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and I came up with radiation as being like the acid test for this approach to delivering technical information because people think that it's beyond them, all right? They think that, oh, it's too complicated. I can't ever know that, uh, understand this. And also, they are scared to death of it, okay? They, they, you can't see it. You can't touch it. You don't know where, where it is. It causes cancer, nuclear bombs, the whole thing. They are just scared to death. So I thought if I could um, use this same approach, so it was like a test, a test to myself, whether or not I could, I could pull this off. So, um, so I designed the whole book, and um, you know, I decided, I mean, it's not a secret what turns people off. I mean, people have done studies. They're turned off by graphs, equations. Um, um, they're turned off by tables. They don't like fractions. Uh, I mean, people have studied these things, and they've also found what people do like. They like, um, they like frequency numbers, like uh, one out of a thousand, things like that, you know. So, um, so basically, I designed the book so that it would tell a story. It would use these user-friendly approaches to conveying technical information. I made sure that there were none of, no figures and graphs or anything in the book. There are figures in the book, but they're all pictures to help illustrate something, so there's nothing intimidating. Um, and I had this dual goal that I wanted it to be both a work for the general public that a non-technical person could read, but I also want it to be a piece of academic science scholarship, okay? So those two thoughts don't seem to be compatible, but that was my goal. So I designed this whole book, and I started writing it, and, um, and it was hard, okay? And um, I was concerned, very concerned, that I would write a book that would be popular with the public and... Um, hated by scientists because I had dumbed down the science and, and, and the science had suffered for the sake of the story and I didn't, I didn't want, want that to happen. I was also very concerned about um, the curse of knowledge. Have you heard of the curse of knowledge? The, the curse of knowledge is when you're an expert in something, it, you just live and breathe it and some of the fundamentals of, of the, you, can't, you can't even imagine other people don't know it, you know, because it's just, just like intuitive to you, you know? So you leave that out, okay? So what I decided is that in writing the book that I would have every chapter reviewed by at least two scientists to make sure I got the science right, and at least five lay readers to make sure that I had satisfied their needs. And both were important. Um, scientists told, pointed out some outdated information and things like that, so I got a lot of useful information from them. And, um, and uh, people... Uh, pointed out the, uh, the uh, curse of knowledge to me. But also I, I, was, I became aware of the curse of age, okay? So um, I'm going to mention something for your benefit, Tim, because I think you know Colin Leibold. Don't you know Colin Leibold? So Colin Leibold um, uh, was an undergraduate at Georgetown University where I teach, and he has an interest in science writing. And so uh, I had taught him biochemistry, actually, so that's how I told him about this book, and, and he agreed to help edit the book. And um, so I'm worried about this curse of knowledge. One day he comes to me and he says, I don't understand. All of a sudden, you, out of the blue, you start talking about Chernobyl. Like, what's Chernobyl, you know? And I'm like, wow. You know, like, Colin is 22 years old, and Chernobyl, believe it or not, is 30 years ago next week, okay? No, 30 years ago next week. And... Um, so Colin 
you know, now let me tell you about Colin. So Colin went to Gonzaga College High School in, in Washington, D.C., very good uh, high school. He went to Georgetown University, which I consider to be a good university. And th now he is a graduate student at Stanford. So Colin has a lot of education under his belt, but he had never heard of um, Chernobyl. So that's what I mean by the curse of age. But because I'm older, I just assume that the younger audience would, uh, would understand what Chernobyl wouldn't need a, a prelude, but it did need a prelude. So anyway, that's the, that's the mechanics of the book. It took me three years to write the book. And, um, and, and then how do you judge the success of this? Um, you know, on the long term, it's very hard to judge the success. But on the short term, we have this little thing called reviews, okay? So, um, so the first reviews to come in were, um, you know, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews and some newspaper reviews. And they were uniformly positive. Um, so I was, I was happy about that. Um, they got really some rave reviews. But I was sweating out the scientific reviews that were going to come out in the journals, okay? So my publish, publicist, she calls me. She says, oh, you're never going to guess Science Magazine is going to review your book. So in case you don't know, Science Magazine is like the top journal in the United States. In, in Europe, it's Nature, United States, Science. So, um, so and, she's, and guess what? They're going to publish it in their five-year anniversary issue of Fukushima. So I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> so I'm like... I'm sweating this out, okay? I'm really sweating this out. And, um, and, then, um, and then she called, it was embargoed, meaning that you're not allowed to see it. It's coming. She said, oh, it's out, it's out, but I can't see it. So like, I sweated all night till I could see it in the morning. And anyway, it, it was a very glowing review, okay? No pun intended, all right? So I, and then, I, and then one came out from Engineering and Technology News, and that was very strong. And then uh, I got another one from The Lancet, which is a medical journal, and that was very strong. So now I started to feel comfortable. But something that bothered me a little bit is that um, the low expectation. I started to think, like, what is, what is it to get a good review when the expectations are so low? So what I mean by that is um, last week... Um, in the Sunday edition of the Newark Star-Ledger. I don't know how many of you are from New Jersey. I am from New Jersey, okay? People in New Jersey do not believe anything unless it appears in the Newark Star-Ledger, okay? That's a statewide paper. So um, anyway, so unless you've made the Newark Star-Ledger, uh, it's not real. So <laughs> when it appeared in the Newark Star-Ledger, that made me legit in New Jersey, and a lot of New Jerseyans that I know started, oh, I saw you in the Star-Ledger and all that. But the thing that disturbed me so much was that the, the, uh, the review started out, I didn't expect to like this book, you know. I knew that it was going to be hard. I didn't know, I, I never realized that it would be written so well or that it would be entertaining or that I would really be interested in the lives of the scientists, you know. So it's like, wow, that's how the review starts. And then it, of course, goes on and gets better. And then, and then there was a review in literary, um, literary reviews, which is this Tony London British periodical that reviews things for, as, as literature, okay? Now, the thing about the British is, I hope there's no British people in here, is that, okay, they're very particular about liter English literature uh, and English. They think they invented the language. Um, so, um, anyway, they have high standards. And, again, this review starts out... 
I did not expect much from this book. I expected it to be written by some retired old boy, just memoirs of his life in radiation. That's how it starts out. So, <laughs> so uh, the ex with expectations so low, I don't know whether the reviews are actually um, can do justice to it. But to, to balance that out, I've been getting a lot of emails from people um, all over the country. And just uh, yesterday, I got an email from a Boy Scout uh, leader and he told me that he had picked up the book in a college bookstore just by accident and um, that he read it and that he has to do a Boy Scout merit badge on, there, believe it or not, there's a Boy Scout merit badge on nuclear science and that this has been so valuable because I was able to make these, um, these complex things, um, him able to understand those things. So anyway, that's the story of the book. I, um, wh uh, why you should read the book? You should read the book. There's two types of people I think are going to be attracted to the book. I think the people who like um, narrative science, nonfiction, uh, re that's regardless of what the topic is, I fall into that category. I read something about evolution. I read something about physics. I read something about astronomy. I think it holds its own as that type of book. So if you like narrative science, you'll, you'll very much like that. If you like scientific history, you'll like that. Um, but the other type of person who might pick up the book might not be drawn to that type of thing, but is interested in the topic of radiation. Okay, they're interested in learning about radiation, and they don't know where to get that information. This would be a, a good source because I like it to be the go-to book for the public. It has a very extensive index in it, and just about any radiation topic you can think of is in the index. And, um, and that would lead you either to the, the narrative or to a footnote that explains that. I did not include a glossary because in glossaries are what are in textbooks, right? Uh, so I'd like you to learn it in the context of the story because that will make it more intelligible to you, but it will also make you remember it better. So that information, rather than just how much do you remember when you read things off of glossaries? Nothing, all right? So that's it. It has a very uh, extensive, it's extensively indexed, a lot of citations, so that you don't have to take my word for it. If you, if you, if you think that cell phones are going to kill you, you know, you can just go to the sources and, um, and find your own sources. So, so basically, that's what makes it um, academically credible, at least in my opinion. So that's the story. Um, I don't know how many of your, I have anticipated many of your questions, but I'm happy to take questions in the remaining time. Yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. So, um, what is the relationship? I mean, is there a correlation? There yeah, so, so here's, here's the story on this. One thing that I, one theme through the book is that we have to stop thinking about things as being safe and dangerous. There's no such thing as safe and dangerous. There is different levels of risk, and risk is proportional to dose. And that is the dogma that we work with with radiation, that every level of radiation has some risk. Now, when people say this is a safe level or this is a, this is a limit for exposure that has been set by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, what that means is that some group of people got in a room and they decided this level is acceptable and this level is not, and that's where the line is drawn, and that's what people call safe and unsafe. Now, we may not all agree on that line, right? 
So when we're talking about medical exposures for most people, and I'm not talking about cancer therapy, because those are obviously higher doses, but diagnostic radiography for, um, for uh, teeth or chest x-rays, these doses, even if you've had a lot of them, a fair amount of them, um, do not add up to enough dose to have a measurable risk, okay? So basically, the risk that's reported for these things is a theoretical risk. And by that, what I mean is we take atomic bomb data, and we go all the way down, and we keep going down on the graph until we get to the level of dose that you're going to get from a dental x-ray, and we come up with a risk number. That's, there may be no risk at all at these levels, okay, because there's, there's a, you know, it's, some credible scientists believe that those types of damage can be repaired, and we, we wouldn't have any risk at all at those levels. But I can tell you this. Even the, the risk is only theoretical because it can't be measured. So it's very small. So I wouldn't recommend that anybody uh, avoid a diagnostic procedure simply because they're worried about the risk because the risk associated with that is not measurable, but the risk associated with not having it is measurable. Okay? It is high. So if you have pneumonia and you, you didn't get it detected because you didn't have the chest x-ray, your risk of dying is high. If you have cancer and you didn't get it detected because you were scared of the x-ray, it's high. Okay? So, so we know the, so there's no decision you can make about radiation that doesn't have a repercussion. So you've got to think not only about the risk of the radiation, but the risk of not having the radiation. And, um, and, and radiation medicine uses keeps going up because we find new and better ways to, um, to use it. And, uh, and in terms of the cancer, I'll just state with cancer, of course the doses with cancer therapy are much higher. Okay, so there is an appreciable, measurable risk, okay? And, um, and so there are a certain number of people that go on to get a secondary cancer um, because of their primary cancer. But for most people, it's kind of a moot point. Why? Because it takes about 20 years to 30 years to get that second cancer. So you have this cancer now, right? And it's threatening your life today. It doesn't make much sense to forego the treatment because you might get another cancer in 20 or 30 years. And the unfortunate truth about cancer is it's a cancer of aging. It's a disease of aging, right? Most people who get cancer, their life expectancy isn't even 20 or 30 years apart from the cancer, right? So it really doesn't make any sense. Where it makes, where it's a big issue is for children where the cure rate from radiation therapy is very high. So there are some certain brain tumors in children where the cure rate is very high. So you're successful in curing their brain tumor, and they're going to live long enough to potentially see a second cancer. So there is a significant number of people who have survived lung cancer and then gotten a radiation-induced cancer. It's a very, very small percentage. We would actually like that to go up because if that goes up, that means we're curing more and more people at earlier points in their life. So that actually would be considered a good thing. But again, I wouldn't advise anybody who has a cancer to forego radiation therapy because they're worried about a cancer they're going to have in 20 or 30 years. Right, but you can understand how somebody would make that move. Yes, you, I can understand that. I mean, there, there is a lot of um, confusion, and I hope the book kind of uh, dispels some of the urban myths about radiation. So you, you, can't, you can't, by the way, um, cook an egg with a cell phone. I'm sure you've seen videos and stuff like that on YouTube and things. Can't be done, all right? So <laughs> I want people to be a little less gullible. Uh, hopefully after they read the book, they'll be less gullible and realize you can't cook an egg with a cell phone. All right. Any other questions? 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, you've just seen the limits, though, all over the years. Okay, so let me tell you this, uh, a little bit about that and why that's a problem. The reason the limits kept lowering is because we could lower them, all right? In other words, um, people weren't getting these doses anyway, you know? So um, we kept lowering the limits. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't an economic constraint or anything. People weren't getting these doses. The other thing is that we came, when we understood that there were risks at any dose, not, there wasn't a threshold below which there was no risk, so we, now we, don't, we believe there's risk at all doses, just proportional to dose. When we began to do that, we, we, we embraced a principle called ALARA. It's, 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 in, it's defined by law, but the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it means as low as reasonably achievable. So what that means is that it doesn't make any difference if the limit is five. If you can make it one, if you can expose people to one, you are bound by law to, to expose them to the lower dose, okay? And, and so um, we've gotten less away from the limits and more towards this Alara principle of low is reasonably achievable. Where we're going to get problems is, okay, exactly like we have in Fukushima. So in Fukushima, they had a very low limit for exposure to the public of one millisievert a year. That was their limit. Why? Because it was easily achievable. But now there's been a nuclear accident. And now the government wants to remediate the um, contaminated areas to a level of 20. And they're telling people 20 is the safe level, right? So people are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It used to be one that's safe, and now it's 20 that's safe, right? What's going on here? And they feel like they're, they feel like they're being told that because the government can't deliver on one anymore, and that's Exactly right. If the government could deliver on one, they'd have one. If they could deliver on five, they'd have five. They're, give, they're saying 20. So I've been a proponent of forgetting these limit things and just explain to people what the risk level is. So, for example, the risk at 20 is about one in 1,000. So what that means, if you, lived, if you lived there for a year and you got a total accumulated dose of 20 millisieverts, your risk of getting a cancer sometime in the rest of your life from that exposure is about one in a thousand. So is that a high risk? Some people might say it is. Some people might say it isn't. But at least you have the information to make the decision, right? So also it may turn on your, depend on your circumstances. You know, if you're older, most of these, and you don't have that much longer to go, you know, you know, you'll be less concerned about this than if you're a child, you know? So it all depends on individual circumstances. But if you give people this information about the risk level, the risk level didn't change before and after Fukushima. The risk level was one in a thousand before and after. The only thing that changed was the limit, okay? And when you keep preaching limits to people, they're gonna get confused. But if you just tell them the risk level and let them make their own decision, then you have people that feel empowered, people that will feel They'll trust you more because you're, just, you're giving them the straight information that they can go look up yourself. You're not hurting people like sheep. Like sheep. Now you evacuate. Now you come back. And they're, they're like, what? You know? But there has to be a proactive um, training. I mean, an, an unpleasant subject, which I didn't cover, has to do with nuclear terrorism. Okay? And, of course, dirty bombs. So I don't know if you've heard of dirty bombs. Dirty bombs is where terrorists would wrap an explosive with radioactivity and blow it up someplace. And these are not, the radiation in there is not really high enough to cause lethality. It it, would be very difficult to put enough radioactivity in there to cause lethality. It's basically to scare people to death, right? So um, 
But we would have the same problem in a dirty bomb. If, if, if in Baltimore, if in the inner harbor someone set off a dirty bomb, we'd have the same problem as they have in Fukushima. We, we would not be able to clean it up back to back the original levels. We'd have to decide on what level is acceptable. The government would be saying, 20 millisieverts, so I think we can do 20 millisieverts, and you and people in Baltimore would have to decide whether you're ever going to the inner harbor again, right? So um, this is not a problem that's unique to Fukushima and power plants. And most experts believe that a dirty bomb will happen, okay, because the terrorists have proven that they can find the explosives and there's enough radioactivity around that they can they, – so this is not a technological challenge. And we've had many dirty bomb um, plots foiled over the last few years. Eventually someone's going to be successful. And it's more of a scare tactic. So – one thing that I hope is that if people read a book like mine, they will realize that it's not a risk of being killed by the radiation. It's an additional cancer risk, and the, and the additional risk is rather low. Okay? But that's why we've got to get away from safe and dangerous, more towards um, risk levels, and people need to start thinking, do I think one in a 1,000 is an unacceptable risk or not? And, um, and the good thing about it is that faced with the same information, different people can come up with different conclusions, and that's fine, right? If, if I think it's safe and you think it's not, you don't go to the inner harbor, and I do. You know, it's, it's fine. So um, we have to have a new paradigm for thinking about this. That was a long answer, but I hope I answered the question. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay, so first of all, I, I'm not a physician, right, so I can't give medical advice, okay? When did the bladder cancer happen in relationship to the therapy? It was 2006 that And when did you come down with the bladder So um, this, is, this is exactly what I was talking about. This is the one, one of these unfortunate cases where it seems like treatment for the primary cancer ended up in treatment in causing the second cancer. So it does happen. But usually um, patients are monitored for the second case. Was this discovered, this cancer of the bladder, early because you were being monitored for um, possible secondary cancers? It was, it was not. Hmm. Yeah. So I really don't know what I can say about it other than that stuff like this does happen, you know. Um, so, of course, if you had had surgery as opposed to radiation, you, you wouldn't have had that risk. But the surgery it's also has uh, 
complications. Um, so th th there's no get out of jail free card with this. So, um, you know, you have to weigh your options and make your own decisions in consultation with your physician. That's really all I can say. Yes. Okay, so about mammograms or about, uh, no, uh, just the risk of it? Okay, huh? Treatment for breast oh, treatment for breast cancer. Um, well, again, I have to give you the, 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 disqu the, the qualification that I'm not a physician, but, um, but we've come a long way with treating breast cancer. It used to be that everyone had something called a radical mastectomy, so the entire breast was removed and all the lymph nodes and muscles and everything. And then, um, and then it was later discovered that um, when you er remove the tumor and you irradiated the area around the tumor, that you got as good a result as you did with the radical mastectomy. So a lot of that was um, so that was tremendously sparing for women. And uh, and now we're adding to that chemotherapy. So um, so basically. Uh, Things are better now because um, it's less, and for most people, um, the, the radical surgery is not required, and we're getting as good an outcome by using, selectively using these combined treatments. Is that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. No, no. Okay, so radiation sickness. Radiation sickness is diseases. Uh, okay, radiation sickness is, happens when you have enough radiation dose to kill cells, and that happens at about one thousand millisieverts. Okay, so below one thousand millisieverts, um, you cannot have radiation sickness, and that's what I'm saying. It would be very difficult to make a dirty bomb that would result in that level of dose. So if you don't get radiation sickness, the only cons health consequence now is going to be increased risk of cancer. So, um, so that's it. Um, you're going to have a lot of people now that are going to have a dose. They're going to be very worried about the risk of cancer. The other problem is you won't be able to tell them exactly what dose they had, right? Because people don't walk around with dosimeters, right? So you're going to have to give you're going to have to give regional estimates. Like if you were here at the time, you probably got a dose of this, you know, and then people will have to, and there's nothing that can be done about that. There's no drug we can give you to lower your risk down again. That's just an added risk that you're going to have to live with. But that's, that's the terror of a dirty bomb, okay? But at some point, we have to decide that we've cleaned it up enough, and now people have to make a decision whether they're going back or not because we can't just completely evacuate Manhattan because somebody set off a dirty bomb, you know, it's a problem. Yes? Right. Okay, so I'm getting a signal for the last question, right? Okay, so I'm going to answer your question. Okay, let me start with the Chernobyl. Um, so in Chernobyl, um, there were, that resulted in 16,000 
um, thyroid cancers, and it's estimated that um, there will be an, another 22,400 other types of cancers as a result of Chernobyl, okay? So Chernobyl had a big impact on health. Um, part of the reason of the thyroid cancers, though, was unique to Chernobyl. The people that lived in that area had iodine-deficient diets. Now, your thyroid absorbs iodine, and when you don't have enough iodine in your diet, as soon as it sees iodine, it sucks it up, all right? So they were particularly vulnerable to this. On top of that, they were not told to avoid eating local food, and that's the number one route for getting the iodine into you, okay? So they ate the local food, and they had thyroids that were looking for iodine. If the same accident were to happen in the United States or like at Fukushima, it would not be as threatening because in, in Fukushima, the people did not eat the local food. They were told not to, and they did not have the iodine-deficient diets, okay? So we expect no thyroid cancers at Fukushima, and we don't expect any other cancers from Fukushima. Um, so then your first question was about... Right. So um, we come up with... Uh, so, so, so the doses from mammography are standardized, right, because people use standard X-ray machines, and so these you can calculate very precisely the doses that women get from mammography, and you can convert that to an overall risk estimate for cancer, okay? And you mentioned that breast tissue is sensitive to radiation, and that is correct, so an extra protection factor is added for for, because it's breast tissue. So the, the risk estimates that you get from mammography account for the fact that breasts are, are, more, um, are more sensitive. And so, um, and so you, you do have some added risk from having the mammography. But then, so with, with breast cancer, it's kind of easy, right? Because the risk, of, the risk is, you, is you die from breast cancer because it's not detected. The other risk is you get a breast cancer because of the mammography. And when those two things have been compared, you're much more likely to find a curable cancer than you are to cause an incurable cancer. So at the end of the day, mammography is a good idea, okay? So um, that's the story on mammography. All right? All right, well, thank you very much.